Welcome to the East Memorial Student Podcast, your source for the biblical teaching of East Memorial Student Ministries. I'm your host, Matthew Ronsky, pastor of Students and Discipleship at East Memorial Baptist Church in Prattville, Alabama. Well, hello to our listeners. As you may notice, this is a direct recording to the podcast because, well, we accidentally lost our recording of the first message of this new series on the Ten Commandments. So we're recording again uh, for the benefit of our podcast listeners. Now, as I just mentioned, we are beginning a new series on the Ten Commandments, and that's going to involve us uh, doing an in-depth study of each of the Ten Commandments. However, before we dive into the commandments, I believe it is helpful to begin with a general introduction to the law of God. So with this message in the next, what we're going to do is lay some foundational groundwork that I believe will set us up well for our study of the Ten Commandments. And in this message, I'm going to focus on the law of God in general. I'm going to address the different components of God's law, the purposes of God's law, and how the Ten Commandments relate to God's law. So let's now begin then with defining God's law, defining God's law. And this will tie into talking about the components of God's law as well. But let's define it. So the term law, according to the New Testament, has a few references. So the first potential reference to the term law is that it can refer to the first five books of the Bible, which were written by Moses. This is also known as the Torah or the Pentateuch. And an example where the law refers to the first five books can be found in uh, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verse 17. So Matthew, chapter 5, verse 17, and I'll read this verse. And this is, of course, Jesus uh, teaching uh, teaching the Sermon on the Mount, And it reads this, so Matthew 5, verse 17. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. So in this statement, what we see is that Jesus is making a distinction between the law and the prophets, or in other words, between the books of Moses and the rest of the Old Testament. And so this is one of many verses where we see the term law being a reference to the, the books of Moses. Well, an, an additional reference to this term law is that in the New Testament, it can also refer to Scripture as a whole, to Scripture as a whole. And the verse I want to read to you all that demonstrates this is from 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 21. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 21. And in this verse, the Apostle Paul writes, In the law it is written, By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Now what's significant about this quote is that Paul is quoting from the book of Isaiah in this this verse. And this is a book, the book of Isaiah is a book which is traditionally considered part of the prophets. Therefore, What Paul is essentially doing is he is identifying all of Scripture as as the law by including the book of Isaiah, which is traditionally considered part of the prophets. By including that under the term law, he is effectively identifying all of Scripture as the law. 
Now, for our purposes in this message, and, and really for the sake of clarity, when I refer to the law, I will be referring to the first five books of Moses, uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy, the first five books of Moses specifically. However, I do want to say for the sake of, of clarification that the Apostle Paul, in, in referencing all of Scripture as the law, he's not wrong in, in doing that or, or using the law in that way. And, and the reason is because there's a reality that the first five books of Moses are the foundation for the rest of Scripture. All books of the Bible, including the books of the New Testament, are connected in some way to the first five books of Moses. Therefore, by referring to all of Scripture as the law of God, Paul is not technically wrong in doing that. And of course, he's not wrong. He's, he's an apostle that was writing under the inspiration of the Spirit. Nevertheless, just so that we're clear in this series on the Ten Commandments, when I use the term law, I will be using it as a reference to the first five books of Moses. So now that we've kind of briefly covered the term law and what it can refer to, I now want to move to defining God's law further. And, and to do that, really, I, I want to define the basic components of God's law. And there are multiple components. And to demonstrate this, I want to read two verses from the first five books of Moses. So the first verse I want to read is from Genesis 26. Genesis 26, verse 5. And in this verse, it says, Because Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, my laws. So we see all these components listed out. Well, let's now turn to Deuteronomy chapter 11. Deuteronomy 11 chapter 11, verse 1, is what I'm going to read. And in Deuteronomy 11, 1, it says, You shall therefore love the Lord your God and always keep his charge, his statutes, his ordinances, and his commandments. So from these two passages, we see several terms that essentially make up the different components of God's law. We see that there's a reference to God's charge. In both passages, we see a reference to the charge, God's charge. We see a reference to statutes, ordinances, commandments, and then laws as well. So now what I want to do is I want to go through each of these components and, and really define them and, and illustrate them. And to do that, to, to make this easy and and maybe to aid our comprehension, what I'm going to do is not only am I going to define these terms according to their, to their Hebrew terms, but I want to relate these terms to uh, the illustration of the modern traffic enforcement system, or what we could even call traffic law. And so let's start with the first term, the first component of God's law, and that is the term charge. The term charge, and this is based on the Hebrew word mishmeret, mishmeret. And the idea of charge is equivalent to the idea of duty. So in other words, to be given a charge is to be given a duty or a responsibility. And that is the meaning of the term. And even I think in, in our English, we understand that the word charge can be used in this way to speak of a duty or a responsibility that is given to, to another. And so 
to illustrate this, let's relate this to the concept in, of the modern traffic system. And if we were to speak of, of the charge that's involved in the modern traffic system, we could say that every driver, every driver has the charge or the duty to be a safe driver. That's, that's the charge. That's their uh, obligation. And so, or you could say it this way, if you drive, you have the duty to protect life and property. And then we also understand that if you violate that duty by, let's say, driving rec recklessly or driving in a manner that puts other drivers and passengers in unnecessary harm's way, well, then there's going to be consequences and, and punishment that, that potentially could follow. Well, relating this to God's law, there is a charge, there is a duty that all men have before God when it comes to his law. It's a, it's a duty that they have one toward God first and then other people second. And as we study the Ten Commandments, we, we will really see the charge, the duty that man has illustrated specifically. Uh, but this is what the term charge refers to. Let's now move to the second component, and that is the component of statutes. Statutes. And statutes, according to the Hebrew term that, that is translated statutes, they are fixed regulations or fixed observances that, that often relate to a special religious observance or special religious ceremonies. For example, in God's law, the, the special feast of Passover is considered a statute. There's also certain regulations for the priests of Israel that are called statutes in God's law. And, and so this is another component. And, and to illustrate this, maybe what we could do in, in, in terms of the modern traffic system, we, we could say that statutes are kind of like the road signs and the traffic lights. Now, this might not be a perfect one-for-one uh, -one correlation, but I think it, it, it kind of communicates the idea in the sense that the road signs and the traffic lights that exist on the modern roads and, and in the modern traffic system, they're like fixed guidelines that then direct traffic. So they're, they're planted in the ground or in the, in the concrete, they remain there day and night, and they function to direct traffic. And in a way, the, the statutes of God's law are similar to this. They, they tend to be a, a, a perpetual uh, sign or, or observance that, that directs the people in a certain way, such as directing them to celebrate and observe the feast of Passover. So this is the idea of, of statutes, a fixed regulation that directs the people often in special religious observances or ceremonies. Well, let's now move to the next term, the next component of God's law, and that is the component of ordinances. Ordinances, and this is based on the Hebrew term mishpat, mishpat, ordinance. And, and ordinances are, we could define them as legal judgments. So when it comes to God's law, often the ordinances of God's law, they, they are judgments that relate to how people are going to be treated in certain situations. They may involve judgments that are to be issued or, or standards of, of how you are to treat somebody in a given 
situation. Now, if we're to illustrate this in our modern traffic system, continuing with this, this illustration, we can say that the ordinances of God's law function similar to the role of police officers in traffic court in the sense that the police officers and the traffic courts, they serve to enforce proper conduct uh, among, among those who, who drive. Well, the ordinances of God's law function in a similar way. They are judgments of God, legal judgments that function to, to regulate and to determine how people are going to act and, and treat others in certain situations. So that is ordinances. Well, let's now move to the next component of God's law, the second to last component that we'll cover in this message. And that is the component of the commandments. The commandments, or that, and that's based on the Hebrew term mitzvah, or mitzvah, uh, commandments. And commandments are verbal or written directives to do something or not to do something. So in other words, they're, they're verbal or written directives of you shall do X or you shall not do X. That's the, the meaning of a commandment. Now, relating this to the traffic enforcement system, commandments are similar to the traffic codes or the traffic laws that spell out what you must do or must not do as, as a driver. Now, it, it should be mentioned at this point that commandments can be tied to the other components like statutes and ordinances. In fact, there is a lot of overlap between all of these terms. Not only are they all components of, of the same law, um, but there is overlap and, and even you could say there's, there's a cooperation, so to speak, between these different components. Uh, for example, using the illustration of the traffic system, in the traffic laws, the traffic code, which we're relating to the idea of commandment, it is spelled out that drivers must come to a complete stop at a stop sign or at a red light, which we've related to the idea of, of a statute. And so thinking of this illustration, the commandment is directing the people to observe the statute or the ordinance and, and so forth. So said another way, or just to summarize, commandments will often direct people concerning the statutes and ordinances. But there is a lot of, of interconnectedness and overlap uh, between the commandments and the other components like the ordinances and the statutes. Now, one interesting fact relating to the law of God and, and the commandments within the law of God, uh, according to Jewish tradition, there are 613 commonly recognized commandments in the first five books of Moses, 613. And if you were to break that down between negative commandments and positive commandments, there are 365 negative commandments or commandments that, that basically tell people what they should not do or must not do. So 365 negative commandments compared to 248 positive commandments or commandments that tell people what they must do or what they should do. But 
traditionally 613 have been recognized. There's some variation on that depending on the Jewish commentator and, and so forth that, that, um, that are trying to count all the commandments. But let's now move to the final component that we'll cover in this message, and that is the component of the laws. The laws, and the term law in Hebrew is Torah. Torah. And this term in the Hebrew literally means instruction or teaching. And so in God's law, we can think of the the laws, plural, as the teachings or instructions that are then supported or promoted by the commandments, statutes, and ordinances. So relating this to our traffic illustration, I think we could say that the laws are kind of like the principles of safe driving that are supported by the rest of the traffic enforcement system. So tying this all together, let's use the example of a four-way intersection. And we can think for a moment with the four-way intersection in the modern traffic system, modern roadways, we can imagine what would happen if nobody ever stopped before they crossed a four-way intersection. If no one ever stopped, it'd be like you were playing Russian roulette every single time you attempted to cross a four-way intersection. There'd be a lot of accidents, a lot of injuries, a lot of death. It would be absolute chaos. And so because of that, there is a principle, or you could say there is a law at play that all drivers should stop before crossing a four-way intersection for the sake of safety, the protection of life and property. That would be the law. That would be the instruction, that would be the teaching, the principle at play would be that you should stop before crossing a four-way intersection. Well, how then do the other components support that or or work together with the laws to, to, to encourage that behavior, to support that teaching or that instruction? Well, in our, this example of a four-way intersection, we have stop signs. We have stop lights, like the statutes, that will, we could say, perpetually direct drivers when to stop and when to go. So you have the signs, the stop signs, the stop lights along the way that will help drivers understand and and follow the the principle at play that they, they should stop. Now, beyond having stop signs and stop lights, You also have a traffic code, which is related to the idea of commandments, that is going to spell out that all drivers must come to a complete stop at a stop sign or red light. So not only is there the principle at play and there are the stop signs and stop lights that that encourage that principle, but you also have the traffic code, like the commandments, that are going to give very clear spelled out directions in terms of what drivers should do when they come to a four, four-way intersection and there's a stop sign or a stop light. Now, again, there's more. There's more, and, and so not leaving out the ordinances, not only are you going to have the principle, the statutes like the stop sign or stop light, the traffic code that's going to spell out what drivers must do, but you're also going to have the police officers and the traffic courts that exist to enforce that traffic code. And they're going to enforce it by imposing penalties on drivers who run red lights or stop signs. 
And so using this illustration, we can see in a, in a rough way, not again, not that this is necessarily a perfect correlation or perfect illustration, but I think it helps us understand in, in, in at least a, a partial way how all the different components of God's law work together to support the teaching and the instruction and the overall purpose of God's law. They all work together. They're all different components of the same law, and they're all working together for the same goals and objectives. Well, this now takes us then to the next section of this message, and that is, well, what are then the purposes for God's law? What are the objectives of God's law? Why does it exist? Well, contrary to what many people think, and we're not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about this in this message, but contrary to what many people think, God's law was not designed to provide salvation for the people who would be under God's law. Now, hopefully we'll be able to talk more about this in our next message, but for now, let me give you just, you know, let me just say simply that God's law does not provide the way of salvation. It does not provide the opportunity for salvation because mankind in their own power does not have the ability to follow or obey God's law. And the New Testament makes this absolutely clear, not just the New Testament, but even the Old Testament. And if we're able to explore this in the next message, we'll, we'll read some relevant passages that illustrate this fact that the people, people, the nation of Israel was never going to perfectly obey God's law uh, absent God's intervention and God's help. But hopefully we'll be able to talk more about that the next time. Well, in this message, what I want to do is I want to briefly cover three, at least three purposes of God's law that I do believe are actual purposes designed by God. And I'm going to give you three. There might be a few more or something that I'm going to leave out, but for the sake of, of simplicity and, and clarity, I'm just going to give three general purposes that, that I do think Scripture establishes. And, and, and this should at least give us an introduction to the purposes behind God's law. And, and the first purpose that we can list is this. There is a purpose of God's law to teach people about God's nature and character. And, and if you think about it for a moment, you can learn a lot about somebody from the rules that they set and enforce. You can learn a lot. If, you know, for example, I'll just use a simple example. If you go over to somebody's house and they have a rule that everybody takes off their shoes when you enter into the house, you can assume that that the, the, the homeowners value cleanliness and they don't want dirt from the shoes to come into the house over the carpets and, and the floors. That'd be, that'd be a fair assumption. And, and so that's just one just little illustration to, to say that you can learn a lot about somebody from the rules that they set 
and enforce. And in God's law, there are some regulations that some laws, ordinances, statutes that that have that purpose at, at their core. And what I mean by this is that there are some regulations and, and commandments and ordinances in God's law that, that don't really seem to have a, a major moral impact in the situation. For example, in the book of Leviticus and in different places in God's law, but specifically the book, the book of Leviticus is a, is a major one, there are regulations concerning the handling of dead bodies. And if you read through those regulations, you will find that if somebody handles a dead body for burial or to move a dead body from point A to point B, that through the handling of that dead body, the, the person becomes ritualistically defiled or impure. And as a result of that, they are not able to, in that state of defilement or impurity, they are not able to enter the sanctuary of God, to, to, to do the services of God's sanctuary. This is especially true for the priests, that, that they, they would not be allowed to carry out their priestly functions if they've been defiled through the handling of a dead body. And, and in order for them to, to move out of that defiled state or that impure state, they have to go through a purification process that involves waiting a certain period of time, going through a cleansing process. And they would have to do that before they would be allowed to continue their priestly duties and, and enter God's sanctuary. Now, when you think about these regulations, it's not sin to handle a dead body. There's nothing morally sinful about that. In fact, it's honorable to bury a dead body, especially if it's if it's one of your family members. You know, you wouldn't want to just leave a dead body, you know, to be, you know, left out um, to the elements. You would want to bury that dead body. So then, if it's not morally sinful to handle a dead body, why do these regulations exist? What 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 are their purpose? Well, I would argue that the purpose of of some of these regulations such as the ones relating to touching a dead body, that they exist to instruct the people about the nature and character of God. Well, how does this example of, of the regulations concerning dead bodies play into this? Well, we can think for a moment that the Lord, God, that in his nature, he is pure. He is holy. He is a God of life, not a God of death. And so to communicate that reality to the people, handling a dead body becomes ritualistically defiling for that person because God is not a God of death. He is a God of life. He is a God of purity and holiness. And, and this, these regulations, they illustrate that fact to the people. And really even beyond those regulations, even, even the laws and statutes that do concern more moral issues, so to speak, we can even say about those that, that every commandment, every ordinance, statute, and law in God's law, they all serve the function of teaching people something about the nature and character of God. In fact, if you, if you recall from a few moments ago, the very word law, Torah, 
has at its core the idea of teaching and instruction. And so it should be no surprise that the law itself as a whole has an instructive and teaching function designed in it. So that's the first major and clear purpose of God's law. But a second purpose of God's law is to restrain evil, to restrain evil. Now, this one should stand as obvious, but for the sake of of clarity, let's just say that if you set a rule and you are willing to enforce that rule with punishment and you have the ability to enforce that rule, then you will encourage people to follow that rule. Some of you listeners may may have children or um, or know people, of course, that, that have children. And, well, how do you encourage your children to, to follow the behavior or the rules that you as the parent set? Well, there has to be discipline. There has to be enforcement of the rules that you set. And if you're diligent to discipline in a, in a loving and, and, and godly way, well, then you will encourage your children to follow the rules that you establish. And this is true of God's law. Uh, one passage that really illustrates this in, in the book of Ecclesiastes. I want to read this verse to you from Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 11. Ecclesiastes 8, 11, And it says, Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. In other words, if evil is not punished quickly and fairly, then people, human beings, will be encouraged or emboldened to do those evil things. Because from their perspective, well, there's no consequences to their actions. So the things in which they feel they, they gain from those evil deeds, whether it's profit or pleasure, well, yeah, of course they're going to do it because there's no, there's no punishment that awaits them. There's no, there's no consequence to their actions. And so in God's law, a huge function of God's law is to spell out essentially sin, to spell out these, these laws, these, these requirements that are then expected to be enforced with just punishment. One example I like to use, you know, often people think when they read through some of the punishments listed out in God's law, they, they tend to think that they're pretty severe. You know, but, but I, I remember having a conversation with, with uh, a few people that, that were a little bit more progressive and liberal in their thinking. And, and I brought up the example of kidnapping. You know, in our culture today with a lot of the racial tensions that are going on, uh, I think it's no surprise to say that, that the the sin and the evil of slavery, especially the, the chattel slavery of, of American history, that that is universally recognized as one of, of the greatest evils in, in modern American history. Well, the law of God would actually address something like that. Uh, for example, there are laws, there is a law that requires kidnapping to be punished with the death penalty. That if anyone is to kidnap another person, and especially for the purpose of selling them into slavery, then that crime, that sin, would warrant the death penalty. 
And we can almost imagine for a moment that if we lived in a world that followed God's law and enforced God's law, not that I'm advocating that in this current stage of, of world history that we as the church or the people of God should encourage some kind of uh, government observance of, of God's law. But for the sake of illustration, we can imagine that if we lived in a world where God's law was followed and enforced, especially in this area or this this sin of kidnapping, well, that would have largely destroyed the international slave trade, the Atlantic slave trade. Not saying that people would not have tried to kidnap or sell into slavery, but if those who participated in that industry were swiftly punished and executed for doing that, overall, it would discourage that industry and practice from happening. And the majority of people would, as a result of that punishment and that enforcement, would decide for the sake of their own skin to not go through with that evil. And so this just, again, the second major function of the law is to restrain evil. And we could say this just for the sake of clarification that in order for this function to be accomplished, God's law must be enforced with the punishments that the law prescribes. And unfortunately, if you follow the history of Israel, the reason the law was largely ineffective in shaping the society uh, as it should or as it was intended to do was because God's law was not enforced. There was even times that the kings of Israel and Judah uh, didn't even know God's law when they were kings. And, and, and I don't want to go too much down, you know, too far down the rabbit hole there. But again, just to, to say this restraint of evil is a major function of God's law, and it does require God's law to be enforced in order for that function to be realized and accomplished. Well, let's now turn to one final function of God's law. And this purpose is to expose the sinfulness of man, to expose the sinfulness man. And very closely related to that, we could even say to point man to the need of their salvation and the need for God to intervene on their half. But for the sake of simplicity, we'll just say to expose the sinfulness of mankind. Now, I hope to talk more about this point uh, in our next message, but for right now, as I said earlier, it is impossible for mankind to obey God's law in their own power. And not only does, not, does man not have the natural ability to, to, obey, to obey God's law, but according to the Apostle Paul, God's law actually awakens the sinfulness that exists within the heart of man. It awakens it, and then it confronts it. It's kind of like a sign on a wall that says, do not touch wet paint. You know, maybe before that sign was on the wall, most people walking by would have no thought in their mind to, to touch the wall or to, you know, dab their finger on the wall. But now they see the sign that says, do not touch wet paint. And we could say that the sinful heart of man, the rebellious heart of man is now kind of awakened. And it's like, oh, well, you know, I kind of now want to touch the wall and actually kind of see if it is really wet 
wet paint or, or not. And, and so this is an illustration that, that is similar to how the law functions. Before a, a person is confronted with the commandments and regulations and statutes and ordinances that are spelled out in the law, maybe they're not even going to think about the particular sin that is being addressed. But when they read the law and they see a particular sin condemned, now that, that commandment may in fact actually awaken, and it doesn't just may, it, it does awaken the sinful tendency of man's heart to then actually go through with that sin or rebellion. And the Apostle Paul does talk about that in, in the letter to, uh, to the Romans. And so again, hopefully next week we'll be able to, to talk more about that, about that point. Well, coming to the end, we've now covered the different components of God's law, and I just gave you a simple overview of the purposes for God's law. So the purposes like to instruct about God, to restrain evil, and to expose sin. Well, this leaves us now with one more topic in this message, and that is the role of the Ten Commandments. In other words, with everything that we've covered so far, where do the Ten Commandments fit Where do they fit in with all of this? Where do they fit in in terms of God's law in general? What is the role of the Ten Commandments? Well, I believe that the answer to that question is relatively straightforward. And I would say this, that the Ten Commandments serve as a summary of God's law. Or we could even say that, or we can think of it as the Ten Commandments being a being foundational commandments of God's law that everything else is tied to in some way. So it's the summary of God's law. They're the foundational commandments of God's law. And as we're going to see as we study the Ten Commandments in depth, every law, every ordinance, statute, and commandment in the first five books of Moses, I would argue, and and I'll seek to demonstrate, every one of those laws and so forth are, are connected to one or several of the Ten Commandments in some way. And so as a result of this, and this is where maybe we'll end this message, I would say that if you understand the meaning of all Ten Commandments, if you understand what God intends through the Ten Commandments, if you understand how they connect to the rest of God's law, then I believe you will have a true understanding and knowledge of God's law. It's like the starting point. I mean, if you if you can master it, if you can if you can understand the Ten Commandments as God would want you to understand them, then I believe you will have a foundational knowledge of God's law as a whole. And then following from this, I also believe that if you have a true understanding and knowledge of God's law, then consistent with its function to instruct about God, to instruct and teach us about God, then I also believe that if you have a true understanding, knowledge of God's law, then you will have a better and true understanding of God himself, a true knowledge of God himself. And then going even further, I believe that if you are able to grow in your knowledge of God through your understanding of God's law, then you will also grow in your knowledge of yourself. 
you will come to understand yourself and your sinfulness, your need for salvation. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the East Memorial Student Podcast. For more information and updates about East Memorial Student Ministries, please visit our website at eastmemorial.org. You can also follow us on our Instagram page titled The goal is to give you and, and all of us a better understanding of God, which will then give you a better understanding and a more accurate understanding of yourself. And so that is my hope and prayer that as we continue in this series, and, and we'll be in this series for several months, that, that God would work to accomplish this purpose. Well, until next time, um, I hope you all uh, have a great rest of the week, wherever you are, and I look forward to joining you all again. Take care.